Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Turn to God's Word now for our New Testament reading and for our look at the Word of God tonight. We turn to Matthew chapter 26. Here in Matthew chapter 26, we have a chapter that describes that first Thursday night when Jesus gathered for that last supper with his disciples. As that evening unfolded in their time together, Jesus began to foretell to his disciples all that would happen in the coming 24 hours. His body broken for them, his blood shed for them, his betrayal by one of them, his abandonment by all of them. And after the supper, Jesus headed over with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, which we read in other gospels was his customary place to go with them. Specifically, we read that he took them to the Garden of Gethsemane, a a place on the western side of the mount across from Jerusalem. And it's here that I want to pick up the story tonight as we read Matthew 26. We'll read verses 36 down to 46. Follow with me as we read God's word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, this is your holy word. Your word is describing for us our Savior, Jesus, in these moments leading up to his death, would you use your word in our hearts to give us renewed gratitude for you and worship of your name. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the art world, a study in contrast is a method of communicating or trying to highlight a specific point by juxtaposing two very different images, even opposite images, right next to each other so that we can see what is different. In 2019, a Turkish artist by the name of Uger Galenkis stirred the world by creating studies in contrast, bringing together images from the wealthy West with war-torn Syria 
in an effort to gain sympathy for the Syrian refugee crisis in Europe. He took pictures of two elementary school girls, one from the West, one from Syria, and then combined them into one picture of one girl, her right half dressed as Wonder Woman for a school party, her left half bloodied and beaten from an attack in Syria. Another image shows a father bathing two children, one half of the bathroom gilded with decor and a chandelier, the other half a bathroom bombed out with debris lying all around. And it was the contrast that brought out what Uger was trying to emphasize. It was the contrast that grabbed our attention and highlighted the disparity of those situations. Now here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have something of a study in contrast. In the same garden, at the same time, with the same call to watch and pray, we see Jesus focused late into the night in diligent prayer, while Peter and James and John struggle to keep their eyes open and drift off into slumber. And it's this contrast that really begins to point us to the main point of our passage tonight, which is the weight and the necessity of Christ's suffering on our behalf. I want to look at that necessity of Christ's sacrifice for us, but in order to do that, let's begin by looking at Christ's example of watching and praying in the garden. I think the first point to notice is his use of the words watch and pray. You know, to, to watch is to focus on something with intentness and, and diligence. To pray is to talk with their heavenly Father. But if here, if you will trace these words through verses 36 through 41, I think you will notice that Jesus uses the words watch and pray nearly synonymously. He tells his disciples that he is going to pray in verse 36. But in verse 38, he asks the three to watch with him. And after asking them to watch with him, verse 39 says, Jesus went a little further, fell on his face, and prayed. But then in verse 40, he finds the disciples sleeping and asks, could you not watch with me for one hour? So you see how he's using the word watch and pray to describe the same activity. In this moment in Jesus' life, watching and praying were the same activity, a diligent focus on the conversation with his heavenly Father. It's a conversation with God that is carried out here with all of the intensity and focus of a, of a chess player who's engaged in a critical game with all his faculties during his turn, during his opponent's turn, watching the possibilities, playing out different scenarios, looking for traps, seeking the way for escape and for victory. And Christ is laser-focused on his Father in these hours of prayer. But we learn more from Christ's prayer here than just his alertness. We see Jesus' quickness to pray when he's faced with sorrow. The very first thing Jesus does when he enters the garden is announce his intent to pray. His first response to sorrow is prayer. And you notice that his prayer is not a quick word of complaint or despair. It's not a quick muttering. It is a three times offered prayer, the first of which is said to have lasted an hour as he ran to hide in the presence of his father in the midst of his trouble. I think the honesty of Christ's prayer is also noteworthy. We are invited to bring every request that we have before the Lord, 
And Christ models that for us here. I think it's significant if you think back over Christ's ministry, particularly in the final year, how many times Jesus talks about his coming death. He's even said that the whole reason he came was to give his life as a ransom for many. So given how completely he's tied his mission and his identity to his death, it might be surprising that Jesus would pray here, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But surely this is nothing less than an honest prayer from Jesus' heart as the cross looms right ahead. And this should be an encouragement to us to speak honestly and to bring every request before our Heavenly Father. But of course, we can't talk about the honesty of Christ's prayer without immediately going on to notice the submission of Christ's prayer. You notice that all three times that Christ prays, he ends each prayer with the same thought. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. And notice, I think, that this is not a concession. It's not as if Jesus is praying and Jesus' deepest desire is that he could escape the cross, but he will concede to the Father's will if necessary. That's not what's behind these words here. No, your will be done is Jesus' highest desire. And so his prayer and his requests are made, but his requests are always secondary to and submitted to his highest priority, which is that God's will be done. And here I think we have a great challenge to our hearts, don't we? And perhaps one of the greatest lessons for us in prayer. Why are our prayers, even our times of prayer, so often times of anxiety or frustration? Why do we sometimes give up praying or begin to doubt that prayer works? Or even accuse God of not caring for us in the face of prayers that do not seem to be answered? Is it not because we have forgotten the importance of submission to God's will? Because our deepest desire is still on getting what we want and what we've asked for, rather than on God's will, whatever it might be? And here I think the 19th century commentator J.C. Ryle challenges us very insightfully. This is, these are his words. Listen to his, his words. He said, Would we know whether we are born again and whether we are growing in grace? Then let us see how it is with the matter of our wills. Can we bear disappointment? Can we put up patiently with unexpected trials and vexations? Can we see our favorite plans and our darling schemes crossed without murmuring and complaint? Can we sit still and suffer calmly as well as go up and down and work actively? These are things that prove whether we have the mind of Christ. And it ought never to be forgotten that warm feelings and joyful frames are not the truest evidences of grace. A mortified will is a far more valuable possession. For even our Lord himself did not always rejoice, but he could always say, your will be done. In fact, I think Jesus here, as he submits to his Father's will, gives us a particular guidance for how to respond when we pray and God's answer is no. Jesus' request here is not granted. 
at least not the first one of the cup passing from him. But God's no here is the means of bringing about God's glory and Jesus' own glory and the salvation of all his people. So clearly a no answer to prayer is not a reason to question God's plans or God's heart for us. In fact, I want you to look specifically at the words of Jesus' prayer. Do you notice the progression of his two prayers here? Verse 39, Jesus prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He makes a request and submits that request to his father's will. But then in his second prayer in verse 42, do you notice what his prayer is? My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. His words are different. And I think what we're seeing is Christ in this second prayer receiving the Father's answer and assuming that the Father's no answer to the first request is one that he accepts and prays accordingly. Okay, Father, if this cannot pass, your will be done. And while Matthew doesn't tell us this detail, Luke adds that God responds then to this prayer by sending an angel to strengthen Christ. And so in his hour of sorrow, Christ watched and prayed, affirming God's will as his greatest desire, while God responded by strengthening him for his trial, such that by the time we come to that final verse, verse 46, we see Jesus equipped by his time of prayer for his calling, saying to his disciples, rise and let us go. My betrayer is at hand. Here is our Savior watching and praying, and the Lord equipping him for what he's called to. Well, how do the disciples stack up against Jesus' example? Jesus calls them, too, to watch and to pray. In fact, if anything, there's even more reason for the disciples to watch and pray. After all, the weakness of the disciples' humanity is even greater than the weakness of our Savior's humanity. And you see that on bold display in this study in contrast. While while Jesus is watching and praying, his disciples are falling asleep. You probably know some of those people who have the gift of falling asleep anywhere at any time. Maybe they're in your extended family. Maybe you'll 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 be reminded of it this Easter. You'll be turning to conversation. Oh, they're they're asleep. The disciples seem to have that gift, at least at this hour of night. Here, the threefold prayer of Jesus is matched by the threefold napping of Peter, James, and John. He asks them to watch with him in verse 38, and they fall asleep. He wakes them up and challenges them to watch and pray in verse 41, but finds them again sleeping by verse 43. A third time, Jesus goes away to pray, and then in verse 45, he finds them still sleeping yet again. And this contrast of Jesus' alertness and earnestness with the disciples' sleepiness only highlights our frailty and weakness. How quickly our eyes become heavy. How quickly our strength fails us. We shrink from the difficulties of life. We're burdened by the frustrations that we face. And if Christ, who was also the very Son of God, turned to prayer in his time of difficulty, how much more ought we turn and watch and pray. But it's not just the weakness of of our humanity because Jesus draws attention in verse 41 to something further. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the fact is, we're not just talking about physical weakness here. We are also prone to temptation because our flesh is highlighting the sinful, fallen nature that is part of us. We don't just face difficulties in life. We face them with fallen hearts that are quick to desire what we want, that are quick to run to sin for pleasure or to cope with the challenges of life. We face them with an opponent in spiritual warfare who prowls around like a lion seeking whom he could destroy. In fact, Matthew 26 gives us a three-dimensional example of this proneness to temptation, doesn't it? In the verses right before our passage, Jesus told his disciples, all of you are going to abandon me tonight. And what did every single disciple say? No way, not me. I'll die with you if I have to. That was the verses right before this passage. What happens in the verses right after this passage? Well, the disciples flee to the four winds. Like Mark 14 says it well. And they all fled. From confidence to abandonment. I wonder as I read those verses, how might things have been different had the disciples spent those hours watching and praying instead of slumbering. And the disciples' weakness and quickness to fall to temptation in this study and contrast highlights and brings us face to face with our desperate need for the sacrifice that Christ was about to offer on our behalf. And now as we see that in the contrast, I want to turn in the second half of our time here to look more specifically at the weight of that sacrifice that Christ took upon himself, which I think is actually the main point of this passage. We see it right from the start. We we see this emphasis on watching and praying, but why was Jesus watching and praying in the first place? What was it that moved Jesus to prayer? Verses 37 and 38 tell us he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Jesus' own words are, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now, over the course of his ministry, Jesus, of course, had had moments of trouble and grief. He had wept over Lazarus' death. He had wept over Jerusalem and its rejection of him. He'd responded in anger to the Pharisees' hard hearts and his disciples' lack of faith. But never until now had Jesus said anything like this, that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even to death. So why? What weight has descended on Jesus' mind and hearts that leads him to this anguish? And I think we want to be specific in our answer. I don't think it's enough to say that Jesus was in sorrow and agony because he was thinking about death coming. Jesus has known throughout his whole ministry that he's headed for death. And not only that, but many martyrs and mere humans have faced death even torture with courage and endurance. So I don't think it will do to say that Jesus was more troubled or more anxious about physical death or the pain of the process of death than many humans are. There has to be something specific about Christ's death, something unique about the Son of God that he was about to endure that explains this sorrow. And we find the answer to that. In Jesus' prayer, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It is the cup 
that Jesus is about to drink that bears him down with a weight of sorrow that makes him exceedingly sorrowful. Well, what is this cup that Jesus refers to? We might take this reference in a more general way to refer to Jesus' lot or his portion or what I am about to go through. That is a a way to to talk about my cup. My cup is what I'm about to, to go through. But I don't think that's correct in this situation because we know that Jesus saw his suffering and his death as specifically fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the cup was talked about repeatedly as a cup of the wrath of God that would be poured out against sin and something that would be drunk by those who would be punished for sin. Maybe you think of Psalm 75 verse 8 which reads, And the hand of the Lord is a cup of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Jeremiah and Ezekiel both refer to the wine of God's wrath and the cup of ruin from his hand. But most significant for us tonight, I think, is Isaiah 51, which comes right in the midst of these servant songs, as they're known. Songs that Isaiah wrote about the coming servant of the Lord who would bring salvation. And right in the midst of those servant songs about the one who would bring salvation, Isaiah 51, verses 17 to 22, we read that Jerusalem has drunk the cup of the Lord's wrath. But one day, the Lord himself would plead their cause and would take the cup of staggering from their hands so that they would have to drink it no more. But why? Why wouldn't Jerusalem have to drink that cup of staggering anymore? Well, it's certainly not that Jerusalem stopped sinning. It's certainly not that Jerusalem no longer deserved any punishment. No. But Isaiah goes on to tell us why the cup will be taken from their hands. He tells us in Isaiah 53, just a chapter and a half later, when he writes that Jerusalem's sin would be laid on the shoulders of another who would be pierced for their transgressions and crushed for their iniquities. And it's because one would be pierced in their place who would drink the cup for them that the cup would be taken out of their hands. In other words, as Jesus enters the garden on the night of his passion, he is facing the weight of the sin of the world laid on his shoulders and counted against him. Now just think about that for a minute. I mean, maybe think of the time in your life when you felt the weight of your guilt the most. I was thinking of a time, it's not certainly the worst thing I ever did, but a moment in middle school when I felt the burden of guilt. I, some of you might uh, understand a moment like this. I was in middle school. We'd gone to a family's house who had all younger kids, and so I was prepped by my parents that my job was to be kind to and entertain the eight-year-old boy. I said, we know this won't be a friend for you, but your job is to, to entertain him. So I did my task as faithfully as I could. But in the process, I broke his sister's baby carriage. Now, it was at this moment that things went downhill because the eight-year-old thought this was great and his destructive tendencies kicked in and he thought, why don't we rip all the wheels off and I can hack them to pieces with my lightsaber? 
And so it was my job to entertain him, so I complied, and he wasn't strong enough, so I ripped the wheels off and let him hack them to pieces with his lightsaber. And, of course, moments later, his sister was devastated upon finding this, and the eight-year-old was punished with a spanking, and here I am, and starting to dawn on me that maybe I haven't carried out my task so well after all. And I still remember going to bed that night with this weight of guilt for this decision that I'd made and waking up the next morning and and there was that weight of guilt again and thinking, if I close my eyes and try waking up again, will this all be gone? And of course it's not. But, But that was one bad decision. What if we took a step further and were forced to stand up and have every sin that we have committed throughout the entirety of our life read out against us all at once in one sitting, so that we were forced to face the weight of all our sins stacked up against us and laid to our account. Our sins are spread out over the years. The passing of time dulls the weight of them. But would I dare, could I dare to face the cumulative weight of my sins held against me? And yet here is Christ in one singular moment bearing the weight of all the sins of all his people from around the world as they are imputed to him or counted against him here on this night of his death. And so it is that J.C. Ryle writes, I believe the agony of Christ in the garden is a knot that nothing can untie but that old, old doctrine of all our sin being really imputed to Christ and Christ being made a curse in our place. And it is only in this laying of our sins on Jesus that we find out how the cup of God's wrath is taken from Jerusalem and from us so that we need drink it no more. Christ himself will drink it for us. So in addition to the weight of all our sin counted against Christ, Christ now here in the garden is facing the prospect of drinking the cup of his own father's wrath. He faces the depth of God's just judgment poured out against him such that his father will turn his face away, leaving him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No wonder Jesus is bowed down in sorrow. No wonder he prays three times that this cup might pass from him. But all this he faced for our sake, that we might be forgiven and redeemed. And so as we come to this passage, what is the main point that we see? We see the sorrow of Christ for the sins of the world laid against him as he goes to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. We see this contrast of watching and praying that only highlights our need of Christ's sacrifice all the more. So as we come to the end tonight on the anniversary of this event, what should be our response? Well, I certainly hope that you and I are motivated to watchful prayer. If Jesus prayed when doubt bowed down with sorrow and trouble, how much more should we? If Jesus' humanity was weak, how much more ours? If Satan's temptations came to him and to us, how much more susceptible are we whose spirit is willing but flesh is weak? But maybe the recognition of our weakness and our proneness to temptation would be just the thing to spur us to watch and to pray. 
After all, if a child visits the ocean for the first time and thinks, oh, those waves look fun and has no perception of danger, that child is far more likely to be knocked down than the one who recognizes that those waves might do them harm and she clings to her father's hand with all her strength. I hope also that Jesus' example is a guide to us, that his quickness to watch and pray and his absolute submission to the will of God would challenge us and make us ask, what is our greatest desire? Are our desires first in our heart that we know we might have to concede them to God's will? Or might we even be able to say that our greatest desire is that his will be done such that all our prayers are submitted to him and are subject to his will. But above all that tonight, I hope that the reason for Christ's sorrow would bring us to our knees in humble worship. He bowed under the weight of the sorrows of the sin of the world imputed to him, your sin and my sin, as he drank the cup on our behalf. And unless he had drunk it for us, we would have no hope but to drink the cup of that just punishment ourselves. But because he did drink it, We can be forgiven and welcomed into his presence. To put it another way, because he drank that cup, we are invited to drink this cup, a cup of communion with him, a cup remembering the blood of Jesus shed for us and inviting us into his presence. And so may we all come to the table tonight with renewed thanks and grateful praise for such a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, you took the weight of our sins stacked against us. You drank the cup of God's wrath, which must be poured out against sin, and you did it in our place for us, that we might be forgiven and redeemed. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for this table we come to now, that we can come to with humble thanks and gratitude and worship, and yet with confidence into your presence because of what Christ did for us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.